This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. With Father's Day coming up, Joshua Kendall joins us to talk about Fathers of Our Country, his book about all 43 dads who've been in the White House. I start with the largest category, which is preoccupied dads. And those are presidents who were obsessed with their careers and with politics and didn't really spend much time with their children. What is it that makes the way we raise our kids in this country distinctly American? Independence, freedom from parents, self-creation, and sort of freedom from old-world notions of um, hierarchy and filial duty that really came into being in the early 19th century. Judith Warner joins us to talk about her review of Paula Fass's new book, The End of American Childhood. We'll also talk literary news and take a look at the books we and other people are reading, including you. The New York Times wants to hear your thoughts on podcasts, this one and any others you listen to. If you've got a few spare minutes, check out our survey online. Go to nytimes.com slash survey And thank you. Joshua Kendall joins us now. His new book is called First Dads, Parenting and Politics from George Washington to Barack Obama. Josh, thank you for being here. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. So uh, this is nicely timed for Father's Day, but I imagine uh, you began it uh, quite a while ago. What was the genesis of the book? My last book was America's Obsessives, in which I profiled seven uh, control freaks who who became uh, towering figures, starting with Thomas Jefferson and going through Steve Jobs. And with Jefferson, I noticed that uh, he was a visionary thinker and one of America's best presidents, uh, but that with his own daughters, he was uh, very, very controlling. He told them what to do, what to wear. He gave them a schedule. And that kind of gave me a guiding question, which was, how how does one lead a country and how does one lead a family? And I began to explore that uh, with all the presidents. And were all the presidents, in fact, fathers? Uh, 38 had biological children and the other five adopted children. So you can really see fathering and all the presidents, including George Washington. George Washington uh, had, had a couple of stepchildren. Uh, Martha was, was previously married and had children. And one of the reasons actually George Washington uh, was, became our first president is that he had no biological uh, children. And it was kind of safe in the 1780s because Americans were afraid of a monarchy. Uh, so he, he wasn't in danger of passing on the reins uh, to his own children. That's so fascinating. Now, you could have taken the book and just gone straight from George Washington up to Barack Obama, but you don't organize the book that way. Why not? Yes, I, I felt that, that it would just be a little bit dry. It, would, it might come off as kind of a laundry list if I just went from one president to the next chronologically. So I grouped them by categories, and I start with the largest category, which is preoccupied dads. And those are presidents who were obsessed with their careers and with politics and didn't really spend much time with their children. The classic example is LBJ, who used to say, well, I think about politics only 18 hours a day. And then I came up with some other categories, uh, nurturing dads or sweet dads, uh, tiger dads, kind of modeled on Amy Chu as tiger moms, and then playful dads like Teddy Roosevelt, who after quitting work at 3 o'clock uh, would go up into the attic to play tag with his sons. I mean, it's kind of easy to understand why a president would be 
preoccupied with work um, under the circumstances and, and not have a lot of time for kids. Did you find that that presidents worried about how it would come across if they were seen as active, involved fathers when they had other things to do? Yes, I guess that comes out a lot in the life of our current president, Barack Obama, who spends five nights a week having dinner with his kids. Obama is often criticized for not being more like LBJ, for not spending his evenings uh, twisting arms. And I spoke to Susan Eisenhower, Ike's granddaughter, and she said, look, the presidency is like a combat zone, and maybe Obama uh, needed to tell his girls, hey, for the next few years, I really can't be there for you. So, yes, when, when the fate of 300 million people are on one's shoulders, uh, fathering does bring up lots of kind of gut-wrenching trade-offs. To what extent were fathers in an earlier era sort of scrutinized for their parenting? Uh, they, they really weren't so much. They were given a lot more slack. I mean, John Adams, uh, our second president, uh, you know, was, was an absentee dad. He was away in Philadelphia uh, at the convention, you know, where he was writing the Declaration. Uh, and they really had a, had a lot of slack. It seems like there's a double standard, like Wendy Davis, who, who ran for governor in Texas. Uh, she, was, she was an absentee mom, and uh, she went to Harvard to go to law school and left her kids for a couple of years, and she was attacked for uh, abandoning her children. But historically, the dads haven't had to deal with that. That might be changing now as fatherhood changes, because in the 21st century, fathers are supposed to be much more hands-on. Uh, as I told The Guardian recently, recently Barack Obama is probably the first president to do diapers, uh, but he, he certainly won't be the last. And and these roles are changing. You have some categories here um, that it's sort of easy to imagine a president falling into more than one, like the grief-stricken you could think of as being JFK, whose uh, wife, of course, miscarried, um, but he could also be a playful pal. Um, how did you How did you work that out? Yes, some presidents could definitely fall into more than one category. Uh, another example is George Herbert Walker Bush, who was a preoccupied dad. He was in Houston living in Houston when he was raising his family, but he often went back to Connecticut. And when he did so, he left George W. and Jeb and the other children uh, with family friends. And uh, Jeb once said, at least they didn't put us in a kennel. George Herbert Walker Bush was also a grieving dad. He lost Robin in the early 50s, and that's when uh, Barbara Bush's hair turned white. He kept a, a portrait of Robin on his desk uh, for, for decades. Uh, and JFK actually lost a a son who lived about a day, a couple of months before he was assassinated, this loss kind of shook him up. Right after the loss, he goes into a, a supply room in Massachusetts General Hospital and cries his eyes out. And that actually brought him much closer to his wife uh, in the last couple of months of his life. And, and there was a sense that he had a renewed commitment to his family uh, at that time. Were there any presidents who really surprised you in terms of being very different as a father, you know, from their sort of public image or how they came across as a president? Yes, I guess one of the big surprises was Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt uh, was our longest serving president, and when he died in 1945, many Americans felt as if they had lost a father. Uh, and he, he was uh, really connected with the masses, and he got us through. Uh, the Great Depression, and he got us through the Nazis, and got us through uh, the Japanese. But as a dad, a totally different side of him came out. Remember, he gets polio in 1921, 
and the kind of needy uh, side comes out, and his kids literally prop him up at a lot of his major speeches. He's leaning on his eldest son, James, and with, with his children, rather than being a, a nurturing, uh, protective father, with his children, he's almost like, like a son. His, cho- his children are parentified, and they kind of take care of him, both his, his children who help him with his sons, who help him with his campaigns, and also Anna, his eldest child. Uh, she moves into the White House uh, a couple of years before he dies, and she helps him at Yalta. So, his, so he really kind of leans on his children while the rest of America leaned on him. And he was kind of a, a neglectful father. Uh, the kids had to make appointments to see FDR, and one of the sons was about to get married, made an appointment, and FDR, rather than listening to him, sticks a document in his face. He says to the son, I, I want your opinion on this. And the son is just humiliated, and he rushes out of the office and tells Eleanor, I'm never going to speak to him about anything serious again. So FDR was really a big surprise. Some of the presidents, of course, uh, their role as, as fathers are well known. You know, you think about Reagan and Patty Davis, but others, of course, uh, are lesser known. And so I'd like to just kind of run through a few presidents we may not uh, know much about their presidencies, never mind uh, about their parenting. Let's start with, uh, as one does, with Millard Fillmore. What kind of dad was he? I have a category sort of double dealing dads, dads who betray their children, and Millard Fillmore uh, got remarried, and he uh, disowned his son, and uh, he kind of betrayed his, his children. All right, now I'm tempted to just go into a little bit more of the double-dealing dads, because that sounds like a, a, a fun-slash-interesting category. Who else was a double-dealing dad? Uh, w- one whom I profile in depth is John Tyler. Uh, John Tyler was came into office as vice president in 1840, along with William Henry Harrison. And uh, there's considerable circumstantial evidence that John Tyler had dozens of slave children. There's no DNA evidence, but I argue that Tyler research is kind of where Jefferson research is a gener- was a generation ago, and that he had dozens of slave children, including a few whom he may have sold. Uh, there were our newspaper reports in the 1840s about his selling of slave children, And I try to connect his double-dealing with his family with his double-dealing with the nation. There were five presidents alive at the beginning of the Civil War, and Tyler was the only one who sided with the South. And when he dies in 1862, Lincoln refuses to acknowledge his death. And there's a sense that he betrayed both his country and his children. Last question. Let's just talk quickly about one of the two presidencies uh, that were father-son presidencies, um, or I guess I should say four presidencies, but John Quincy Adams, obviously the son of a former president and then a president himself. What was he like as a father, and was there an expectation that he would raise another president? Yes. Uh, John Adams was what I call a tiger dad, and he told John Quincy early in life, you're either going to be president or you're going to be a failure. John Quincy rose to the occasion his brothers didn't do so well. They kind of self-destructed uh, and, and became alcoholics. And John Quincy had the same expectation with his children. He names his first child George Washington Adams. And George Washington, uh, that name shows the, the, the responsibility that he put on that son. Tragically, that son committed suicide. Uh, but but uh, John Quincy Adams was, was very tough. And a tiger bread can either kind of make a child or break a child. And John Quincy Adams did have 
a very successful son, Charles, Charles Francis Adams, who was the ambassador to Great Britain during the Civil War and, and was considered presidential timber uh, in the 1870s. Uh, but but uh, George Washington Adams uh, didn't make it. And John Quincy was, was so tough. Uh, George Washington, he, he had a, another son at Harvard, and the kid was about 30th in his class of 70. And, and uh, John Quincy said, well, don't bother uh, coming home for Christmas vacation. And then he kind of changes the goalpost. The son does better and is about 10th in his class. And then John Quincy says, unless you're in the top five, I'm not going to come to graduation. So John Quincy was a lot like his father, maybe even tougher than John Adams. All right, let's not end on that gloomy note. Uh, if there is any president uh, who you really admired as a father, who would you say? So I, I end the book on, a, on an up note with the sweet dads, and those were Rutherford B. Hayes, Harry Truman, and Barack Obama. And there are also a few others. George Washington was a sweet dad. But Harry Truman was just so nurturing uh, to his daughter, Margaret. She describes herself as a total daddy's girl. In the 1940s, Margaret wants to become a singer, and her mother, Beth, says, well, uh, you know, none of this career stuff. It's time for you to get married and start a family. And Harry is just so understanding. He says, well, if she wants to become a warbler, let's let her become a warbler. And in 1950, she gets that famous concert uh, where she gets a harsh review from the Washington Post. And Harry writes a nasty gram saying he's going to chop the, the guy's block off in a letter to the editor. And his aides are horrified. And they say, oh, my gosh, what have you done, Mr. President? And he says, well, let's see what the mail says. And the mail comes out 80-20. Uh, in favor, and 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 Margaret is is very appreciative, and she says, "I'm glad chivalry isn't dead." And she had a future as a novelist. Uh, yeah, after her singing career was over, she wrote about twenty books. All right, well, that's a happy ending, so we'll stop there. Joshua, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Josh Kendall is the author of a new book, First Dads: Parenting and Politics from George Washington to Barack Obama. Want to be part of a future podcast about the books of summer? We're asking to hear about a formative summer book from your past. Send us a voice memo telling us about a book you read during the summer. How old were you when you read it? Where were you? How did the book affect you? Keep your story to 30 seconds or less and make sure to tell us your full name, where you live, and the book's title and author. Then email it to us at podcasts at nytimes.com. And thanks to everyone who've already sent in their voice memos. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. We just assume that it happens, but no one else is in the room where it happens. Alexandra Alter joins us now to talk about books. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. We're not really going to talk about books. We're going to talk about musicals. Musicals. I've never seen a musical drive book sales the way that Hamilton is driving book sales. It's usually a movie, a TV show. Uh, this seems kind of unprecedented. It's not only the book that's adapted from the musical itself, which is called Hamilton, the Revolution. That book has sold more than 100,000 copies in just two months, which is really kind of insane for a book that's about a musical. Can we say one more thing that you, uh, I think, tweeted out earlier this week that I loved, which is in a story that's in the Arts and Leisure section this Sunday about the um, sort of economics of Hamilton. There's one little note there that 
that Ron Chernow, author of the book on which Hamilton was based, makes $900,000 a year in royalties. Isn't that astonishing? From the musical, um, he gets 1% of the gross of the musical. And that, because this is such a behemoth, turns out to be $900,000 a year. He's the historical consultant on the musical. And his own book, of course, has benefited tremendously from being adapted into a musical. It spent 33 weeks on the paperback bestseller list. There's a little logo on the new paperback copy that says the book that inspired the hit Broadway musical. But it doesn't stop with Ron Chernow's biography. There are more authors jumping on. on this bag. With <laughs> Coloring it. book? Coloring book I haven't seen yet, but I'm sure if we Googled it right now, we would find it. The other books that are coming up this summer and fall include Elizabeth Cobb's historical novel, The Hamilton Affair, which is due out this August. And the demand is so strong for that, again, based on the musical, that her publisher has increased the first printing to 75,000 copies. They were planning on doing 10,000 or 20,000, something sort of mid-level, but booksellers are really ordering a ton of copies of this already. And the novel is about the true love story between Hamilton and his wife, Elizabeth. There are cameos by George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and of course, Aaron Burr. All right, let's pause for one second and just listen to a little bit of musical love between Elizabeth and Alexander. How long have you known? A month or so. Eliza, you should have told me. I wrote to the general a month ago. No. I begged him to send you home. You should have told me. I'm not sorry. I knew you'd fight until the war was won. But you deserve a chance to meet your son. Look around, look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now. Will you relish being a poor man's wife, unable to provide for your life? I relish being your wife. Any excuse to listen to the Hamilton soundtrack, do go on, Alexander. <laughs> the novel is coming out in August, and it's already getting some good reviews. Kirkus Reviews said that, quote, Although it's entered a crowded field of biographies, fictional or not, of various founding fathers, Cobb's meticulous account holds its own, even without catchy tunes. And so beyond the novel, there's another book coming out in the fall from Three Rivers Press, and it's called Alexander Hamilton's Guide to Life. I'm surprised that nobody thought to write this book earlier. It's a self- Hey, Ben Franklin wrote one, so... Right? Exactly. No, that's a good point. This is a, a more contemporary kind of self-help book, which is by the author Jeff Wilzer. And according to the catalog copy, it is, quote, a success guide based on the life of the founding father who mastered the arts of wealth, wit, and women, and then inspired a hit Broadway musical. That should be the last line of everyone's biography. (laughs) Oh, and just so the kids don't feel left out, there's also a middle grade book. It's called Alexander Hamilton Revolutionary. It's by Martha Brockenbrow. And it's an unconventional biography with original illustrations and archival material, which will look at the role of Hamilton as a founding father in shaping the government and the finances of the United States. But where's the Minecraft Hamilton book? There needs to be a Minecraft, (laughs) absolutely. And as you said, a coloring book. If that doesn't exist, I'm going to go invent one right after we're done with this. And Amanda Vale is working on a book about the Schuyler sisters, although it's not quite written yet, but I imagine they'll rush that very quickly to bookstores. I'm sure they will. All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me.
Judith Warner joins us now. She is the author of Perfect Madness, Motherhood in the Age of Anxiety. And this week she reviews The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child by Paula Fast. Judy, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me on. Um, so this is, we should say up front, this is a book by um, an academic um, published by Princeton University Press. Does it read like an academic book or was it accessible? It's accessible. It's okay. more accessible than academic books generally are. It does suffer from some of the ticks, let's say, of academic writing, a lot of repetition of key concepts. And I think that they are even over-repeated in a sense in this book because the author is conscious of wanting to write for a popular audience. Right. And it feels as t- at times as though she wants to make sure that we are actually understanding her. And yet, it's not a long book. It's, you know, 300 pages, and she covers a lot of territory. Tell us a little bit about sort of where she begins and, and how she organizes the book. She situates the start of her story in the early 19th century, and then she moves forward to the present day. And she does that in order to be able to give us a coherent narrative of what American childhood means, which she defines in a very specific way around ideas of independence, freedom from parents, self-creation, and sort of freedom from old world notions of um, hierarchy and filial duty, basically, Mm -hmm. that really came into being in the early 19th century. And yet she doesn't start in the colonial period. No, she does not. I think because it, again, it gives this kind of coherence to her narrative Mm -hmm. to start a little bit later. Although certainly the sorts of things that she's writing about really started in the colonial period. So what made American parenting different from the old world way of doing it? Part of it had to do with American ideals, Mm -hmm. the ideals and the values that were, um, well, that brought the settlers here, but that also were so much in the air as our country was founded. Overthrowing authority, you know, lack of blind authority, um, throwing off uh, primogeniture and entail, um, and in that sense being able to sort of form your own destiny and and follow your own path, at least for white men. Yeah, So there was a conscious effort to not simply show a fealty to traditional ideals of hierarchy. There was also a great deal more um, of a kind of relaxed atmosphere in the home. It was something that was remarked upon by de Tocqueville when he wrote Democracy in America. It was repeatedly remarked upon by other European visitors to the U.S., on the positive side, that American homes seemed a lot more affectionate, that you had these bonds of affection rather than loyalty, hierarchy, etc., authority, fear. Um, but on the downside, and it, this is always sort of amusing, European visitors considered American children to be very rude and not to know their place. And of course, you know, we see that still today. But it's funny that, you know, we look back often parents today and think, oh, you know, it used to be done so much better. Um, And back in the day, you know, kids were more obedient and parents were stricter and rules were more carefully delineated. And yet you're saying that people came from Europe in the 19th century and looked and said that these kids were kind of running amok. Absolutely. And the the kids were speaking their minds, not knowing their place, um, over-empowered, up to a point. I mean, there was also mixed in, I think, a certain begrudging admiration for the fact that the kids 
were kind of carrying their weight in the family, and also that you saw these new relationships that were based on affection, which did tie into ideals that had carried forward from the Enlightenment about how family life might evolve. How does she deal with just the heterogeneity of American childhood, even in the 19th century, what went on, I imagine, in a small um, family in Providence, Rhode Island, was very different from what was going on on the frontier, was very different from what happened in slave families or new immigrant families from Italy or Portugal. I mean, how does she deal with that? She deals with that very well. And I would say that, you know, those chapters, areas where she talks about this heterogeneity, those are some of the richest, most interesting and well done parts of the book. She really shows the way that slave families were entirely excluded from all the American ideals of family life, basically all of what she's writing about, you know, freedom, independence, none of that. I mean, and these wonderful filial bonds, I mean, the children were stolen from the parents routinely and sold. Does she take that legacy and draw a line up to today to African-American families and say there are differences in contemporary child-rearing as a result? She does not. And my guess is that she does not because that area is sort of a minefield. Mm -hmm. Her pages on immigrant families are very interesting as well in showing the really pitched battles sometimes that played out in immigrant households Mm -hmm. where fathers really wanted to battle to hold on to the authority that they would have had in the old country. Children really were pulled very happily into these much more American notions of freedom and self-creation. And, of course, you had fathers who were already feeling weak and undermined by the fact that they were in a country where they didn't speak the language or didn't speak it well, where they had very tenuous employment, etc. And she doesn't carry that forward into the present day as well as she might either. Um, In terms of talking about immigrant families, she talks a fair bit about Amy Chua at one point and, um, you know, the Tiger Mother book. But there was a lot of pushback to that book in talking about a kind of broader range of experience, let's say, in Asian American immigrant families. And that is missing. And you raise a very good point. That larger discussion could have had a much larger place in the book. Paula Fass, the author, is a historian of childhood and education at the University of California, Berkeley. Does she bring something new or different to the sort of vast number of parenting books? She is able to talk about the um, 19th and early 20th century with a degree of detail and a richness of primary source material that you don't tend to find in non-academic writing, and she does all of that very, very well. In writing about our contemporary period and in writing about, let's say, the mid-20th century, she does not continue to bring that same sort of value-add. This period has been very, very well covered by dozens of books in the past couple of decades, and I was actually surprised that she didn't bring that same level both of analysis but also of source material to her treatment of that period. 
Her subtitle um, is A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child. And you mentioned earlier that what the uh, observers from the old world noticed about American parenting was its kind of freewheeling style. Yet, she says, from life on the frontier to the managed child. Is she saying that we have moved away from that heritage? She does. She says that we have moved away from it, however conflictedly, that it's still an ideal that we struggle with. I actually think that she exaggerates the degree of the struggle for contemporary parents. Um, I think that she gives too much weight to sort of mini phenomena like uh, free-range parenting. Right. She puts it on an equal footing with other larger phenomena. I think also, for the sake of compression, maybe, for a subtitle or for her introduction or for the sake of having sort of a coherent narrative that can be summed up, you know, in, in a couple of sentences, she overlooks some of her own material. I mean, she describes how in the 19th century, a very different kind of middle-class parenting ideal came into vogue, which had to do with much more management of children, much more observation. There were even, you know, I was surprised to see that that child-proofing, child-proof furnishings existed in the Victorian period. So it isn't as though, you know, there was this one ideal that held up throughout and then all of a sudden we abandoned it um, because of changed circumstances later on. The, The tension between freedom and control was there from, you know, much earlier. What was the most surprising thing you read in the book? It was a, a surprising thought, perhaps, that came to me, actually, in reading about the emergence of the sort of angel-in-the-house mentality in the 19th century. And this was accompanied by, because we tend to think of this as a shutting down of women's power, right, of a domestication of them, which cut them off from the outside world and took away their their potential for empowerment. But this was accompanied by a certain kind of domestic empowerment, as um, Fast describes it, um, as judges came to more universally, let's say, give mothers custody of their children, because it came to be so much more strongly believed that mothers uniquely had this higher calling toward motherhood. And it made me think that there was actually something in it for the women, Hmm. as this angel in the house ideology took over, that they were not merely kind of passively drawn into it, but that they got something out of it, too. And that was an interesting thought and an interesting perception about how gender roles develop and that it isn't just a sort of one-sided putting down, let's say, of, Mm -hmm. of, of one gender, that there's a back and forth there in terms of how power circulates in the family. From there onward into perfect madness. Judy, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. Judith is the author of Perfect Madness, Motherhood in the Age of Anxiety. She is also working on a book that I know I will be very eager to read about middle school. And this week she reviews in the book review, The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child by Paula Fass. Judy, thank you again. Thank you. Joining me now to talk about what we're reading and what others are reading, Pearl Sagal and Greg Coles. Hi, guys. Hi, Hi Pamela. Pamela. 
So let's talk a little bit about what's going on with the bestseller list. There's a few interesting new titles. Yeah, on the fiction side of things, it's uh, almost all summer reading stuff. Um, Meaning our summer reading issue. <laughs> largely, yes. Starting uh, with Emma Straub down at number 14, her new novel, Modern Lovers, hits the list. Uh, it was in our summer reading issue. Then um, Alan First has a new novel, A Hero of France, new at number seven. It was in our summer reading issue. And uh, we also talked about, um, more than once, Noah Hawley's novel, Before the Fall. That um, cracks the list at number two. Um, there's a couple other you know, light books also suitable for summer reading. Dorothy uh, Benton Frank has another South Carolina novel. It's called All Summer Long. That's at number three. And there's a new novel at number one this week. Clive Cussler and Boyd Morrison are back with another Juan Cabrillo uh, novel. That one's called The Emperor's Revenge, new at number one. What's going on with nonfiction? Nonfiction, a couple of interesting books. Uh, Neil Gaiman, who is, of course, known as a comics writer and a novelist has a collection of nonfiction. Uh, it's called The View from the Cheap Seats. It's sort of a grab bag. He acknowledges as much in his introduction. It's speeches that he's made and reviews that he's written and um, essays and introductions to books. It's it's sort of a John Updike looking back at, you know, I mean, just gathering all of the miscellany that, that he's done over the years. Tweets? <laughs> there are no tweets, although he's a prolific tweeter. He's just, you know, got this huge audience. And, and so um, this book, it's him thinking on the page and, and his audience grabs that up. So it's uh, new at number 10, The View from the Cheap Seats by Neil Gaiman. The uh, legal scholar Cass R. Sunstein, he, he teaches law at Harvard and is a very prominent scholar. He's married to Samantha Power, uh, who has written on genocide and is um, it serves in the Obama administration. He's got a book, new at number 13, about Star Wars. <laughs> it's uh, called The World According to Star Wars. And he um, goes through the whole universe of Star Wars, so to speak, and uh, analyzes it from a cultural perspective and a political perspective, an economic perspective, a legal perspective, um, kind of saying how this story sheds light on how we live. You know, I think about what future historians will make of our moment in time when they look at the current nonfiction bestseller list. <laughs> because you've got Bill O'Reilly killing off the presidents. You've got Hamilton, confusingly, on the list, if you didn't know there was a musical. Shoe Dog. That's right. Shoe Dog, the Phil Knight book. You've got Ta-Nehisi Coates. And you've got The World According to Star Wars. Um, I, yeah. And physics. We seem so yep. confused. We're so confused. All right. But clearing it all up. Paul, what are, what are you reading? I'm having, oh God. So I've always wanted to have a poem memorized. And I come from like a long line of people in my family. I think it's also in Indian culture. Poetry is so important. And everybody gets this sort of rigorous, ridiculous education in English romantic poetry. So, you know, just growing up walking with these people that could just, you know, drone on endlessly and about, you know, to sort of recite the preludes and this, that and the other. I always wanted just one poem, but I'm just impossible it, it just doesn't stick in my brain like the most insipid pop music the most misogynist song will like brand itself on my brain but if I sit down and try to memorize a poem it just doesn't work but I've been trying this week um and so I started thinking maybe something that rhymes maybe something like a little sing-songy so I've been reading a lot I was of say, maybe if you said it to music oh, my poor husband can you imagine <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I was reading a little Auden I was trying to memorize this poem as I walked out one evening and it's just not sticking so I'm actually reading now um a book that's coming out this summer. It's it's by the poet Maureen Ann McLean. It's called Ms. N. She's interesting because, especially if you don't like poetry, if you think you don't like poetry, I really recommend her because she's a very argumentative poet and she does write a lot about 
gender and genre and identity and sort of stages this really interesting debate with herself on the page. And so I hope that, you know, my generally like quarrelsome nature will <laughs> lend Can you give us a couple lines? Can we put you to the no, test? No, but you, I will come back. This is my promise. Right. I will come back with some sort of right, here's butchered my version. challenge. Yeah. <laughs> I have a poem memorized. You do? I do. Yeah. Is it so impressive? It's so impressive. You want me to do it for you? I do and I don't. Okay, Once do it, do it. Midnight dreary. <laughs> what do you look like? <laughs> The saddest thing I ever did see was a woodpecker pecking at a plastic tree. He looks at me and friends says he, things ain't as good as they used to be. Oh, my God. See? It's so yeah. intimidating. See if, you, see if you can do it. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Greg, what are you reading? I've just started reading Ford Maddox Ford's The Good Soldier. It's a book that uh, I was assigned in school 20 years ago or more and did not read at the time as an, an assignment that got by me. I've gone back. It's very interesting reading. It's got this kind of languid drawl, uh, the moneyed class, uh, the kind of um, the tone is sort of somewhere between Somerset Mom and D.H. Lawrence. There's lots of psychosexual torment. It's a, it's a book very much about male jealousy. Um, which is interesting to me. Earlier this year, I read another book very much about male jealousy, The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. Um, and then our listeners will know that a, a few weeks ago, I finished uh, reading Days of Abandonment. So, so what's that, going on, Greg? <laughs> Are you, you okay? None of this should be taken personally. Um, but Days of Abandonment is interesting because it's from the female perspective, but it's it turns into not so much a book about jealousy as just a book about kind of female rage and empowerment madness. and identity. Yes, mad madness, exactly. I feel like this is like the book nerds version of gonzo journalism. Like you have to go back and read all the books that were assigned to you that you didn't read at the time. It's funny you say that because I was thinking on the way in this morning that I often pick one big book and work my way through it over the summer. A few years ago, it was Moby Dick. I finally got around to that. I'm thinking this year I might finally read Ulysses and make that my summer reading project, in which case uh, I will do what you did, Pamela, and, and check in weekly with installments the way that you did with Les Mis. All right. Speaking of which, what are you reading? I am not reading Les Mis. Um, that, that I have uh, finished and put aside, but I'm reading it. It's also a big book, but uh, in very, very small digestible bites, I'm reading the most recent collection of Nora Ephron's collected uh, work called The Most of Nora Ephron. It came out um, a couple years ago. And, uh, you know, she's so good. Um, I think a lot of people today maybe remember her most for her, you know, later sort of comic personal essays. Or her movies. Or her movies. But she was such a good journalist. Mm -hmm. And so this goes largely in chronological order. And I'm reading some pieces from the 70s. Um, she went in one of them to uh, talk to reporters at the Dallas Morning News in 1976 who were still on the JFK assassination beat mm -hmm. and looking into all the conspiracy theories at the time. And uh, and then the one I was just reading last night was about, um, it's called The Boston Photographs. And it's about these photographs that were taken of a woman and a small child falling from a, a fire mm. in Boston. And because of the improved camera technology, they could take these photos very, very quickly in a way that you know, they hadn't been able to before. And when newspapers published these photos, which show this woman just seconds before she died, the child landed on her and so lived. There was enormous controversy. Should these photographs have been printed? And of course, this is a conversation that, you know, continues. I'm sure it's the 9-11 conversation. Yes. You know, and, and it's interesting that you bring that up because right before that, 
I was reading a collection of David Foster Wallace, and one of the essays in that collection, Consider the Lobster, was about his experience of 9-11, which was in the uh, a neighbor's house watching it on TV and seeing the fallers, the jumpers. Yeah. And there was that whole question of whether those images should have been shown. But Nora Ephron, in her essay, argues that the photographs should have been shown, that they captured a moment in time, and that you know she starts off her, her essay with... You know, she says, I'm going to say a terrible cliche, but I'm thinking about it, which is a picture is worth a thousand words. And she basically goes on to explain in this essay why words can never capture what was in those photographs. Yeah, and yeah. and it was interesting because it, it brought up this question that I've been thinking a lot about recently, which is, do you then go and look up the images? Yeah. You know, yeah, right. do you yeah. what do you Google after you read? Yeah. Um, and uh, and I had made the mistake of, of going and Googling the, the jumpers, which I had never seen um, after reading the David Foster Wallace. And I have not yet looked up the, the Nora Ephron. The other thing I looked up from that David Foster Wallace collection was in his very long reported piece about the John McCain presidential yeah. campaign in um, 2000. He writes about extensively about McCain's capture and long imprisonment in North Vietnam and mentions that there is a statue still in Hanoi that commemorates and celebrates John McCain's capture. When I was in Hanoi 20 years ago, didn't see this sculpture, but I wouldn't have known to look for it. So I had to, of course, then Google it to see what it what it looks like. And I didn't actually go on to see, have they taken it down or is it still standing? I'm just trying to think. I, I can't imagine America erecting a statue to celebrate capturing a prisoner of war. I, mean, I guess it just goes to show you what a big deal John McCain was mm-hmm. yes. from his family mm-hmm. and, and kind of his stature even that early in, in his career. Well, we also don't pickle our former leaders and put them into, <laughs> and turn them into touristic uh, yet, uh, attractions. Yet, yes. Yet. <laughs> there's, always, there's always more to come. All right, Paul, Greg, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.